you guys go ahead and stop playing your instruments for just a second. I want all of you to close your eyes. I feel really free tonight. I had this experience while I was driving in my car the other night, and I came home and I told Courtney, oh, I feel so weak, but I was like really excited about it, authentically excited about it, and I started to cry. Because I had this picture when I was driving in my car that I was standing in front of a group of people just like this, and there was no ethereal keys playing behind me, no big build in the band, no music behind me. And I started to think about if my responsibility was to stir, create a move of God, what could I possibly conjure up, say, or do in that moment in my own strength, resource, talent, or ability that would create an authentic move of God? Like, like what am I going like to come in at a loud decibel, try to shake up your emotions? Am I going to say something really, really sharp and intelligent that would shock your mind into an authentic move of God? And I felt so weak and powerless that moment. I said, no, I can't do it at all. And there was such a release that came through that. And that's not to say that God isn't in the element of worship, that he's not in our prayers, that he doesn't brood over the word when it's preached. But I'm saying there was nothing in and of myself I could do. And I want you to picture not me standing up here, but you standing up here. You've got people staring at you, and you're staring back at them. What are you going to do to create a move of God? Like, how weak, how powerless do you feel in that moment to really create anything? And it took me to John 15. Where Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And I just say tonight, I agree with that statement, and it's actually freedom. Because it takes you out of the place of control, or striving, or needing to force, or create, or stir up anything in your own strength because you can't do it. And then you get to become fully yielded as a vessel to the Holy Spirit, and say, God, do something break into this generation. They don't need what I could do in my strength or my ability. They need you. And there's incredible freedom in that. And then it just took me to a whole new depth of appreciation for grace, which is the gift of salvation that you could do nothing. You could offer .0001% of your effort to earn your salvation. And then I said, hallelujah, it's a gift. And then I thought the Holy Spirit is not a reward for the good things we've done and after we got saved, we proved that now we're really worthy of getting the gift of the Holy Spirit on our life. No, that's called a gift to you, not a reward. He's not something given to you because you now earn some type of esteem in the eyes of God. He too is a gift. And then whatever your ministry, whatever your role is to play in the body of Christ, that too is called a gift, which means you did nothing to earn it, deserve it, or work for it. And then in that moment, you feel totally free to say, I just receive it. And I can't do anything other than just ask you to come and move. So let's just do that. Just corporately. There's changes you want to see happen in your life. There's things that you want to see happen in your community and your nation. And the second you realize that I don't have to be in the driver's seat, I just have to get out of that seat and let the Holy Spirit just take control. Let's just say I agree with your statement in John 15 that apart from you I can do nothing, and that's freedom. That your grace abounds in my weakness. I just say I'm weak and I need you. I'm powerless apart from you. Plug me into the source tonight and use me in my generation that you would be glorified. That at the end of my life, at the end of tonight, everything would point back to you because what happened would be, humanly speaking, impossible. Do something real, lasting, eternally impactful in our hour of history by the power of your spirit and your grace that work within us. We ask this now in Jesus' mighty name and everybody said, Amen. You guys can go ahead and grab your seat.
Romans chapter 8. If you've got your Bible with you, Romans chapter 8. I love this chapter more than I can describe. Romans chapter 8, starting verse 18. The title of my sermon tonight, I think, is between the groan and the glory. But I was stuck because I also want to call it the merit of the cry. And I think that they go hand in hand. But Romans 8, starting in verse 18. And it says this. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning. You guys have been groaning in the earth lately? As in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruit of the Spirit, grown inwardly. Anybody been groaning lately? As we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. We hope for what we, or what, who hopes for what they already have. But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Verse 18. He said, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. He takes the present, everything going on in this present age, and he juxtaposes it. In other words, he puts it side by side for the sake of creating a contrasting effect with what is to come. He takes the present age and the age to come. He puts them side by side for contrasting effect, and he says they're not even worth comparing. The suffering in light of the future glory, the glory that age to come will eclipse. In other words, it's going to completely overshadow the sufferings, the discomforts, the doubts, the wonderings, and the pains of the present age. But not only that, not only are they eclipsed, not only is the scale completely broken, like if you were to take all the suffering of the present age, not just in your life, but in the, the earth as a whole, and put it on one side of the seesaw, and then you took the, the glory of the age to come and put it on the opposite side, all the pain, suffering, discomfort, wanderings, and aches are getting launched to the moon on the other side of that seesaw, because the future glory of the age to come so outweighs everything we go through in this age that Paul says it's not even worth comparing. Not only so, but also our present sufferings are given special meaning. They take on special meaning in light of the age to come. 
2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, Paul here again says, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. In other words, the suffering in the present age is not useless. It's as in the, chains, the pains of childbirth. So we just had a baby uh, four months ago, exactly to this day. And I remember in the nine months of pregnancy, I told Courtney that pregnancy and ultimately, especially the delivery that she went through is the single hardest thing I've ever watched a human go through. And I'm not exaggerating. I'm sure there's harder things. But for me personally, those final moments of delivery were the hardest things I've ever seen somebody go through. I thought it was seemingly speaking impossible. But frequently she'd be uncomfortable. She'd be sick. Uh, she would just not feel herself. She'd feel slow and sluggish. She couldn't sleep well at night. She'd be restless during the day. And the only encouragement I can offer her is that this is not like normal sickness, which is without a purpose. Like you get a stomachache and you're just hoping to get over it, but at the end of the stomachache, there's nothing, right? Other than just a relief that it's gone. But pregnancy is suffering that is unto something greater. So I would say, I just want to encourage you. I know that this is hard right now, but what you're going through is unto something greater. It takes on a special meaning because of what you're carrying. Having a baby is glorious. I'm going to look at Elisa. She's the only one I know that has a baby in the room. Delivering a baby is horrible, right? And pregnancy is painful, but it's so worth it, right? So worth it at the end. And a pregnant woman's discomfort takes on special meaning again because of what she is carrying. So the discomfort of this present age, what we experience as believers in the present age, is unto something. It's not useless, meaningless suffering that we just get over and it's like, oh, I'm just glad it's over. We must understand that the birth pains, which is what Jesus refers to them as of this age, are unto something. What are they unto? They're unto the resurrection of the dead and ultimately the return of Jesus. Which brings us to why I want to call tonight the Maranatha cry. The word Maranatha means come, O Lord. It is an invitation to the Lord's speedy return or his reappearance. It was also an encouragement frequently heard amongst the first century believers to watchfulness, readiness, and hopefulness as a common expression again amongst the early believers. Maranatha is an invitation to lift up your eyes and find hope, courage, and comfort in the imminence, the soon and speedy coming of his appearing. Maranatha reminds the believer to perceive the present age in light of what is coming. It shifts us from what is transient, what's taking place right now, temporal in the moment, to what is eternal. And this longing is more than a faint hope. It's not just like a passing feeling. It's meant to be a deep, deep groan, which we're going to see here in just a second. This passage told us that the earth is groaning, the believer is groaning inwardly, and the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is groaning himself. What are they groaning unto? Groaning is intercession. The Spirit and the bride and the earth today are saying, Come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha, may you come speedily, may you come quickly. This is the source of our hope, our courage, our comfort. Verses 19 through 21, he says, For the creation waits in eager expectation. For the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope. 
That the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. All creation, this is the redemptive storyline, right? From the garden was subject to frustration, death, and decay at the fall. And all of creation, not just human beings, are looking forward to the future restoration, which is that's the kingdom come prayer. That's why Jesus said, you pray, your kingdom come quickly. With the coming of his kingdom, the establishment of his kingdom is the restoration of all things. And the Bible is saying that even creation itself, even the beasts of the fields and the birds of the sky, are longing for the day that all things will be restored at the second coming, the appearing of our king. And I want to put a note in here. I know that eschatological just means uh, the study of things related to the end. There's many different beliefs uh, related to this. Uh, I talk about the end times a lot, and I do not have an abandonment theology. I believe that things are going to simultaneously get worse and better at the same time. I'm going to figure out what that means. I believe there's going to be great revival. I believe there's going to be great and widespread darkness right up until the time of his coming. But that doesn't mean that I abandon the earth. I've got a son. I'm just going to say, you know, screw the earth. I don't have to worry about it because Jesus is coming back. No, I actively work to bring his kingdom during my time here on earth. But I also know that my only hope is in the second coming of Jesus. Because any hope fixed outside of that is actually part of the secular narrative where we're just going to float towards some type of utopian society without Jesus actually coming and overthrowing the Antichrist spirit and setting up his kingdom on earth, right? So my hope is fixed in the biblical narrative and not the secular narrative that says we can get there without God. We're waiting for his coming. Listen to how awesome this is. I was hoping that Karen's going to be here because she loves like handling snakes and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. I thought she was just... All types of jacked up about this verse, but this is Isaiah 11, 6 through 9. Isaiah looking forward to the age to come, and she says, or she didn't say, Isaiah said, the wolf will live with the lamb. Listen to this. Has this happened yet? This has not been fulfilled yet, guys, right? Have you seen a nature show where this is happening yet? No, this isn't an age to come. This is the restoration of all things. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play with the cobra's den. I do take issue with this. I would really like to believe that there are no snakes in the age to come, but apparently they're less scary. I like to think that maybe they throw legs by this point, okay? Uh, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest, not Ezra. And they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What a glorious day. In other words, the earth is going to return to its pre-fall state. It will be as it was in the Garden of Eden again. God will tabernacle. He will dwell amongst his people. We will have open and free, unashamed communion with God. When does this take place? That's a logical question, right? When does this take place? Why am I tying this concept of groaning in the earth with the second coming of Jesus? Because it's talking about this happening at the time of the children of God receiving the resurrected bodies. When does that happen? At the return of Jesus. Right? That's when the dead in Christ will rise, and those who are still on the earth will then go to meet him in the sky. We receive our second, our, our resurrected bodies, our eternal state. We'll see him as he is, and we'll become just like him. That's beautiful. That's glorious. So the earth is groaning, and it's groaning unto the return of Jesus and the restoration of all things. Verses 22 through 23. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth. There's that feeling of childbirth again, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly, as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. We who have the first fruits also grow. What is the first fruits? 
It's when you were born again, the Holy Spirit came and took residence inside of your body. That was a taste of what it's going to be like when you're living in open communion and fellowship with God. We contain the hope of glory. Also in the Bible, it's called the hope of glory. But he goes on to say, why do you need to hope for something that you already have? No, that doesn't make any sense, right? This brings us into an understanding that the kingdom is now, but not yet. I talk about this a lot because you have to get this. When you understand Jesus always talking about the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom. He didn't separate the two. He said that until the end of the age, the gospel of the kingdom must be preached to the ends of the earth. It wasn't just the gospel of forgiveness or the gospel of salvation, but the gospel of the coming kingdom, which happens when the king, Jesus, comes and sets up his kingdom on the earth, right? We can't separate the two and think, oh, it's just, I got saved, I punched my ticket, now I'm just waiting to go be a floating soul up in the sky. No, that's a part of the narrative, but there's also a second coming where Jesus is going to set up a physical, tangible, literal kingdom on the earth, and it's going to be awesome. And we get to participate. In the Garden of Eden, pre-fall like state earth, and all of creation and the believer are groaning for the day that this is going to come. And rather than this hope pacifying us, it makes us groan. It makes us long. It makes us love sick. It makes us want it really, really bad. And that's the hope of this sermon tonight. Again, that I can't work up in you, but that by the hope of glory within you, you would start to that talking about the second coming of Jesus wouldn't be for some niche, weird little group inside the church, which it sometimes feels like I'm part of that group, but that it would become the hope of every believer to stand in the physical presence of Jesus yeah. and to see his face that shines like the sun in all its brilliance and to minister at his physical, tangible feet and just lay on the ground for hours and hours and days and nights and just totally be lavish in his presence. Oh, I can't wait for that day. It doesn't pacify us. It makes us groan and long. It's not for some niche group in the church. It's the hope of every believer. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. You know, my mom, uh, she comes over and watches Ezra in the morning for us when we go to work, and she's asking what I was preaching about today, and I, of course, almost got tear out as I was talking about this Maranatha cry, so I was getting ready to leave the house, and I said, this was so much more present in the early first century believers, because when they left in the morning, and they kissed their wife goodbye. And they said Maranatha. It was with the understanding that they might not be coming back home that Like because of them saying, I belong to the kingdom of Jesus. Jesus is king. They were basically saying Caesar is not. Which was political treason. And because they bore the name of Jesus, they might be locked up in prison, beheaded, crucified upside down, burned at the stake. So their hope was not that things were just going to get gloriously comfortable in this life, but their hope was intimately attached to the second coming of Jesus. So as much as in you know the early days, uh, or even today, uh, Jews might say to one another, Shalom, the early believers would say, Maranatha, our hope is in the second coming of Jesus. Come speedily, Lord Jesus. Lift up your eyes. Don't focus on the temporal. Don't focus on the transient. Focus on the eternal hope of glory, the second coming of Jesus. But I think what's happened, why this has become like a niche kind of corner belief, a corner focus of the church today is because a lot of us are living in comfort. And one of the great gifts of the discomfort that we're in right now is that we have to start to ask ourselves, where is my hope located? Is it in the government? Is it in some type of current movement? Is it in a certain figure or person? Is it uh, that some type of escapism belief or just some type of blind hopefulness that's not actually attached to anything? Or is my hope anchored to the person of Jesus Christ in his coming kingdom? 
bear not the cover of Jesus. Verse 24 through 25, again, talking about this now, but not yet reality. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we yet do not have, we wait for it patiently. So at the moment of salvation, when you were born again, which if you were not born again, the Bible says you are not saved. You received the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity came and lived inside, and you were justified on that day before the throne of God. You were set right before God. The rest of your years on earth are a process of sanctification where you are being conformed into the image of the Son through life experiences, through time spent in the Word, through time spent in community, through friction in life. God is using all of it to conform you to the image of the Son, which is basically called sanctification. That is an ongoing work in the life of the believer. And would anybody say that work is done in that? No, right? It's completed when we see it, right? One day we're going to strip this earthly tent, this body, and we're going to receive heavenly bodies, which happens at the second coming of Jesus. That's why the kingdom is it's already beaten. It's been, there's been a down payment. There's been an engagement payment. Put on our ring at the cross. So the wedding day is coming with the second day, with the second coming of Jesus. And we long with anticipation for that day. You guys got married like a couple years ago, right? Yeah. What, what, how did you talk about your wedding before you got You gushed. You gushed about it. It was the longing of your heart, the desire of your heart. It was the thing you looked forward to in anticipation. And I love Samuel Whitfield from uh, IHOP says that when you talk to an engaged woman about her wedding, you could ask her any question related to anything she can't tell you about her wedding. It doesn't even matter if you bring up the person she's engaged to. It doesn't matter if you talk about football. Somehow she will bring up her coming wedding. Yeah. This is how... The hope of Jesus coming is supposed to be for the bride who's eagerly waiting for her bridegroom king to come in the clouds of glory. This is why this is the consuming passion of my life. Almost every time I get in front of people, I say, I want to provoke them to care about this. Because it's a big deal. As big of a deal, if not, or I'm not going to say more, but as big of a deal as the first coming of Jesus. Which he literally fulfilled. Not spiritually. But literally fulfilled in an incarnation when he came in the form of a human being and died a physical death with nails in his hand. And he's physically coming again to literally fulfill the prophecies written about Because we get up and excited. It's already, it's now, but it's not yet. Again, this is the your kingdom come, your will be done. So there's this groan inside of us because we find ourselves in the gap. And the gap is uncomfortable. Because here I have Holy Spirit living inside of me. And yet I feel sickness sometimes in my body. I see sickness and brokenness in the world. I see racism in the world. I see broken government infrastructure. I see sex trafficking. I see outside the abortion clinic. And I see one mom come out and choose to leave. And 13 go in and choose to slaughter their baby. And something about this says the kingdom has not come its fullest. The restoration to the extent it's supposed to happen has not happened on earth yet. And as a believer who longs for that day, this makes me uncomfortable. But also I have this hope of what's coming. And somehow in the tension, it births intercession. It births a groan. It doesn't pacify me. It makes me want to get into action and pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. We need to step into and embrace the call of every believer to intercession. I believe the call to intercession actually precedes whatever your ministry gifting or calling is. I'm called to preach the gospel. Trent's called to play the keys. But before we're called to do any of those things, I'm just to play the keys of the worship. But... But before that, I think the intercessory role 
And for too long, we thought that it just belonged to a couple introverts in the corner of the church, or a couple old ladies. <laughs> you know, you'd rather just say, you go do your thing in the shadows, and we trust that it's doing something, but yeah, you just go do your thing. No, think about the men who were intercessors in the Bible. Think about Abraham standing outside of Sodom and Gomorrah and saying, Lord, I, I don't want to go too far, but for the sake of 50 righteous people, would you spare this city? God goes, yeah, I would. And he goes, I, I don't want to overstep my bounds, but for the sake of 40, would you save it for the sake of 40 righteous people? God goes, yeah, you know, I would. Okay, I, I don't want to go too far this time. How about for the sake of 30 people? And he keeps working his way all the way down to 10, and God says, yes, even for the sake of 10, I would save the entire city. Think about the season before Moses was born. Go back to Exodus, I believe it's chapter 2, the end of chapter 2 or 3. And it talks about the 400 years of oppression that the Israelites were under slavery and bondage in Egypt. And it says that their cry began to reach the ears of God and he knew that it was time to act. So what did he do? He raised up a deliverer. And we know Moses as a deliverer. We know him as a prophet. We know him as a leader, as a spokesperson. But I love Moses as the intercessor. You know, one time they were in the desert, Moses goes up on the mountain of God for 40 days, receives the Ten Commandments written by the finger of God, while there's revelry going on down during the camp. After they've seen the plagues that God struck, stretched out his right hand over Egypt, delivered them with his mighty right hand, split the Red Sea, drew water from the rock, and now they're casting golden calves and saying, these are the gods that brought you out of Egypt. And Moses, in his human anger, is so mad, he throws the tablets written by the finger of God on the ground and shattered a bunch of pieces. And then God says, Moses, get out of the way. I'm going to destroy all of them. And I'm going to start over with just you. I'll bring you into the promised land. And I'll start this whole thing over with just you. Moses gets before God, lays on his face. And he says, God, I'm begging you to forgive these people. And if you won't forgive them, block my name out from your book. Do you know what that means? He basically was saying, if you won't forgive this entire group of people, kill me on the spot. What type of heart is that? That would say, I could look at these people and divorce myself from their destiny because they're all messed up and, and they're hard-hearted. You even call them stiff-necked, God. But I've married my destiny to the generation I'm a part of. And if they don't get in the land, I'm not getting in the land. Kill me on the spot. That's the heart of an intercessor. That said, God, you gave a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I'm going to stand in the middle. I'm going to groan and tell you, you can either kill me or spare this whole group of people. It's the heart of an intercessor. History was changed through the prayers of one man. Think about that. Think about Elijah. We know the miracles that Elijah performed. But I want you to think about him on Mount Carmel. I love this picture of Elijah on Mount Carmel. God says it's going to rain. And rather than being pacified by what God said he was going to do, he gets down in the position of travail, literally in the position of childbirth at that time. And not once, but seven different times, he just begins to say, send rain, send rain. He sends a servant. He says, go check and see if there's any rain. There's nothing. There's nothing developing, Elijah. There's nothing developing. And he just gets down in the same position. He starts begging God to do what he already said he was going to do. It's the heart of an intercessor. Think about the Apostle Paul who's writing this chapter, Romans chapter 8. And then in Romans chapter 9, he illustrates the groan by saying, the Holy Spirit can bear witness to what I'm about to say, that I'm being truthful in what I'm saying. That I'm so grieved in my spirit 
about the lack of responsiveness in my own people, the Israelites, then I would wish that I myself could be forever cut off from God, that they might be saved. Sounds a lot like Moses' prayer in Exodus 32, 32, right? It's hearkening back to that same part of an intercessor. Except he was saying something more significant. He wasn't just saying, kill me if you won't spare them. He was saying, I would actually eternally separate myself from you, from my one true love, from Jesus, if you would save this whole group of people. That's a groan. That's a cry. That's a part of an intercessor. The groan acknowledges the pain of the present, but it's ultimately fueled by hope. This is not just that you're going to wrap yourself in burn to this, you know, you can't go to bed in the morning because you're so overwhelmed with how bad things are on earth. No, it's healed by hope because you know this Lord who's coming is going to set every wrong right, who's going to dry every tear, who's going to reign and rule with righteousness from Zion. So we stand in the gap, we stand between the horrific conditions in the earth today, and we stand between that future glory. And we intercede. We grow in between. Verse 26. In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. Anyone ever felt weak in a place of prayer before? Like just, I don't know what to offer you. I'm not even sure what to do. Or just felt a general lack of fervor for prayer or a general lack of ability to press in past distractions in a place of prayer to pray for more than three minutes without your mind going somewhere different. Just feeling weak in a place of prayer. Tired. Can't wake up in the morning. Can't stay up late enough. Can't get out of bed when God's telling you to go to a place of prayer. The Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. Anybody ever not know what to pray for? I love this. It says, we don't know what we ought to pray for. The Spirit Himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. Holy Spirit interprets tears, sighs, aches, pains, thoughts set in His direction. It's not about eloquent speech. Growing in the place of prayer is not about, I love Kevin said this in a prayer meeting earlier, it's not about getting a whole bunch of $10 words in your collection and sending those up to God and thinking that He's going to hear you more because you prayed more eloquently or pressed more people in your speech. In fact, Jesus said, don't feel like that. Right. It's that you get a heart set on fire yeah. with longing, anticipation, love, sickness, desire for Jesus, His plans, His purposes, the establishment of His kingdom, and that desire begins to lift itself to God. Right. One of my favorite quotes on prayer, Ian Bound said, uh, without fire, there's no incense. Yeah. You know, the Bible refers to prayers as incense. Well, incense doesn't lie, it just kind of sits there. There's no fire. There's no desire in your heart. Prayer is going to sin. So these wordless groans are being fueled by, again, standing in attention, standing in the gap. And then there's desire, there's longing, there's love sickness. And even when you don't know what to pray, you just you begin to cry out before God. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. This is beautiful. Basically saying the Holy Spirit is going to conform your will in the place of prayer to God's very own will. And He does the work. He does the work of conforming your will, conforming your ask, your wants, and your desires to the will of God. 1 John 5, 14 says, and this is our confidence, if we ask for anything according to His will, we already have. James says you have not because you ask not. And even when you ask, you ask amiss. And you ask according to your own passions, lusts, and desires of the flesh. 
And therefore, you don't get what you want. But when he becomes our desire, when he becomes our want, when our prayer life starts to be conformed to the will of God, we start to pray affectionately, fervently, we start to actually seek answered prayers which gives more glory to God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. I love to tell people that that's, you know, ultimate destiny for your life. That's like a million-dollar question. What's the God's plan for my life? What's his destiny? Well, who you're supposed to marry, where you're supposed to go to school, what job you're supposed to take is all secondary to you being conformed to the image of his son. Why? Because it said that he predestined meaning he decided in advance that if you're called to him, then you're going to be conformed to the image of his son, and that's ultimately what he wants on your life, is that you would look more like Jesus. That he might be the firstborn amongst many brothers and sisters, and those who predestined, he also called, those who called, he also justified, and those who justified, he also glorified. So what is the responsibility of the believer in intercession in the present age? What is your responsibility? What is my responsibility? I don't think it's just a burst of intense passion. Sometimes that's the case. We just built up at the end of tonight. I don't think that's happened. And we got really passionate and served for about 15 minutes. That would still produce something for sure. Like no prayer goes wasted. We're all collecting golden bowls before this throne, so I believe that would matter. But the goal is that as long as you're in this present age, you're growing in You're growing in the place of prayer. You're growing in longing, anticipation for the coming of the King. And if you actually have like a marathon approach to growing in a place of prayer, to becoming an intercessor, that your first commitment, I remember being on a night watch one time, so we do all night prayers sometimes here at the refuge. And the prayer in my heart shifted from, I used to, and I still cry all the time, God, you know, I want me to preach the gospel, call me to do it, help me to do it. All of a sudden I said, but before I want to be anointed to preach the gospel, I want to be anointed to be in prayer. I, I know that I'm going to move the hearts of men through preaching, I'll move your heart through prayer. I want to be known by you in the secret place. I want personal history with you. Let's move the needle as a generation in the place of prayer. Let's pray into the untills. There are a couple events, if you don't know what I mean by that, there's a couple events, I don't like to say that the return of Jesus is hinging on these, as if it's just like, you know, all of a sudden it's like, beep, 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 and we hit the four things and all of a sudden he's coming back. But there are things that he said. One of them, you know, if you read on in the coming chapters, well, first of all, uh, Matthew 23, 39. This is key. This is key if you want, like, a very simple, you know, overview of eschatological views as I understand them. Matthew 23, 39. Jesus walking the streets of Jerusalem and says, You will never see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is coming back. He's going to rule. He's going to reign from Jerusalem. Then his disciples ask him a series of questions. They say, What sign will signal that? end of the age, your, your second coming, your appearing. He said a whole lot of things, wars, rumors of wars, and the first and the birth pain. He talks about the abomination of desolation that's going to be set up in the temple, and there's going to be these things, this cascade of events. Armies are going to march against Jerusalem, and there's this really key verse, Matthew 24, 14, and the gospel of the kingdom will go to the ends of the earth, and then the end will follow that. Okay, so the gospel has to go to the ends of the earth. In Romans 9 through 11, it lays out God's plan that the fullness of the Gentiles is going to come in. So this is the time when the fullness of the Gentiles are going to come in. They're going to provoke Israel to jealousy. So that's one of the untills. The fullness of the Gentiles, the fullness of the gospel of the ends of the earth, the fullness of the Gentiles, Israel being provoked to jealousy and turning to wealth and blessings he becomes in the name of the He's talking about the Jewish people, saying, we receive you, Jesus, as our king. The fullness of Israel. The maturity of the church, Ephesians 4. 
talks about the fivefold ministry gifts. It says all of these will continue until the church grows up into the full and complete measure of the standard of Christ through the head of his church, the body. So there's maturity that has to happen in the church. So it's not just about the full number. It's not just the quantity game. It's just to get a bunch of people saved, but they'll just stay busy with the Christians. No, there's going to be quantity and quality. There's going to be maturity of the church, the fullness of the Gentiles, provoking Israel to jealousy. And one thing that's, I think, taught to the maturity of the church in Revelation chapter 6, this will kind of freak you out, it talks about this scene in the heavenlies and the blood of the martyrs, uh, you know, before the altar that's in front of the throne, and they're crying out and saying, how long? How long before you avenge our blood? How long before you avenge us? And he says, hold on, wait a little bit longer. He gives them a white robe. And he says, not until, there's that word until, not until. In other words, I'm not coming back to where justice in the earth until the four of your brothers and sisters lose their life by holding fast to the testimony just as you have. Which means that there's actually a full number of martyrs that are going to come in before Jesus comes back. Darkness and light we're seeing at the same time. What does that tell me? One, we should be praying for the persecuted church. But two, that there's going to be such a depth of love and maturity for the Lord that we won't shrink back from death and we'll hold fast to our testimony at the end of the age. And we'd rather cling to Jesus with a merit not to cry in our heart, but that our only hope is found in Jesus and not in clinging to our life. Guys, we have to know these until so that we can live into them, so that we can lean into them, so that we can pray into them and see his kingdom come. These things matter. When you start to look for those things, you see these being the groan of the heart of the apostles as they wrote the epistles, that these things were ever before them. It's Paul talking about every time I think about you guys. He's moving the church towards maturity. Every time he shows up in a region, what does he do? He follows a similar pattern. He goes to the Jew first in the synagogue where they wouldn't receive him. He'd go and he preaches to the, the Gentiles. He's still praying for the salvation of the Jew the entire time. He himself loses his head for the, <laughs> the faith that he holds fast to. All of this to say, let's be provoked to care about the events related to the end of the age. Let's commit to being a generation of intercessors. That we would say, I want to be a man or a woman of prayer. I want to move the needle forward in my generation. Because Revelation also says that there's golden holes that are collecting the incense, which are the prayers of the saints before the throne of God. And when the bowls are full, they get tipped out and poured out. I want to be a part of filling those bowls. More than I want to have good services, more than I want to just do fun ministry stuff. I want to move the needle forward unto Jesus splitting the sky and setting up his kingdom in the full restoration of the new heaven and the new earth. Because that's something. Right? Go ahead and stand to your feet if the band can come back up.